0: Hi and hello, Watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show, with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. and today I am joined by a guest from the islands, David Brailsford. Dave, welcome to the Airwaves. You represent Garrick Watch Company. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Rob.
1: Nice to speak to you at last.
0: Yeah, hello, sorry, I had to delay our previous recording date for, I can't even remember what it was that got in the way now, but I was not available to sit down and talk to you. And I have been looking forward to it for quite some time because Garrick is a brand obviously on my radar as someone who grew up and trained in Britain myself. And you're doing some remarkable things at some remarkable prices. But let's just start at the beginning. Can you tell us who you are, where you came from, and why you decided to get into watchmaking?
1: Yeah, so my name's David Browsford. I originally started a business some time back called VIP Watchfinder. And I was sourcing, this was many, many years ago, I was sourcing watches originally for high-end clients, which got me into the world of independent watchmaking. I was sourcing from independents. I became a consultant for some time. And then, then many years back, I was approached by my partner, Simon um, about opening a watch brand. At the time, I was working with uh, Peter Roberts. I don't know whether you remember Peter Roberts, Rob. He did a watch called the Concentrate 20 Pieces quite a legendary British watchmaker, trained Peter Speed, Marin, Stephen Forsey, my partner Simon, and a a few others. I was working with him at the time, and that's when Simon approached me to start the watch brand. And knowing the many pitfalls, I kind of said no for about six months. But in the end, I just thought to myself, you know what, maybe we can do something a little bit different. This was about 10 years ago, and at the time, there was hardly any British watch brands at all. In fact, the only one really worth mentioning was – Schofield at the time, we wanted to do something a little bit different and do it all in-house so we put our own money into the project and buying loads of lathes and the machinery that we needed and then uh, we started on the prototyping route for a year and then we launched the brand uh, and it's been um, uphill ever since so to speak but you know it's been a, um, a long 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 road that's all I can say to get where we are at this present point
0: Yeah I can imagine and uh, you occupy a very different part of the market from Schofield because of the amount of emphasis you place on the mechanics and that's really stunning to appreciate to be honest because we hear a lot about shall we say more marketing oriented companies in the UK like say Bremont for example and their attempts to bring watch manufacturing back to UK shores but You've been doing it all this time. So why don't you tell us how that process came about and what kind of challenges you faced when you were setting up a workshop?
1: Well, my partner, Simon already had an existing workshop, so it was fine along that front, but we expanded it um, over the years. Um, They, so the, the way the way we operate is, I know you you've visited a lot of the manufacturers, Rob. We we're a little bit different than most independents. A lot of independents, um, you know, they, they do things in different ways and they bring parts in from elsewhere, do assembly work and whatnot. We've got quite a, an impressive setup, to be honest, um, and that's not blowing my own trumpet. We've, so we. We we've got a, our own workshop. We have a plating room dedicated solely for doing all the plating on the dials and the movements. We have a linishing room for doing the polishing and the graining. We have a separate polishing room, um, a, a grit room. So we've got every everything's you know different rooms for doing different jobs. You can't all do it. Obviously, it's dirty work doing polishing and whatnot. So you can't have it in the same place as you building and assembling watches. There we have positive air pressure in the workshop. And all this stuff's kind of been added over the years. And then we've invested in lathes and, you know, various other pieces of equipment, such as hairspring, digital hairspring machines and whatnot. That's been the hardest part is sourcing all the machines. And a lot of the stuff we've got, like our Hauser Jig Borer, which is a, a, an incredible pe- uh, piece of machinery. It's a vertical lathe; You can make anything on it, main plates, you know, bridges, anything, basically. Uh, We've had that for quite some time, but recently we've sourced a couple of Rose engines and a straight line engine, which proved the hardest thing we were looking for years and years and years and years. So the biggest challenge has been doing the dials in-house. We've always done dials in-house, but we've never been able to turn, uh, do engine turning until the last year or two. Um, In fact, the last couple of years, that's been the biggest challenge, sourcing the Rose engines, because they are basically like hen's teeth. Um, as rare as hen's teeth um, but you know the other thing is watchmakers so the um we you know i had a we had a, a really good watchmaker called craig baird who was a phenomenal watchmaker could do all the engineering and whatnot he was with us for many years and then he left us a couple of years back and so our hardest challenge in in recent times has been sourcing watchmakers um with the relevant skill sets and it's difficult in the uk because everybody just goes into kind of service centers uh, they don't learn how to use, operate the lathes and um and whatnot and and that's been our biggest challenge in fact it's been an absolute nightmare over the last couple of years but i mean you know we're getting there our, our watchmakers are veterans are kind of my partner simon's a 30-year veteran my main watchmaker and manager and um, stewart was a 30-year clockmaker believe it or not and he transitioned into watchmaking and we've got neil who Worked at Rolex for many years. Um, So, you know, we've got a good team. We've lost staff members over the last couple of years. But, you know, say talking of challenges, it's um, the fact over the years that there was no watchmaking industry to suck. So we've had to learn everything from scratch um, over the years. You know, everything, plating, uh, not many watchmans do plating in-house.
0: That's been an absolute nightmare for us getting that right. Various things, Rob, to be honest. You seem to have learned and mastered quite a lot of skills for such a relatively young brand. I mean, I'm looking at the dial finishes available. And yeah, you've got the guilloche options now with the rose engine machines, which are, like you say, incredibly rare themselves. And so a wonderful thing to be able to offer. But could you tell us a little bit more about some of the other dial finishes that our listeners will be able to see on the Garrick website, explain what they are, what options you have and how you actually bring them to life?
1: Yeah, because we don't kind of do dials externally. So we we, we are limited. So we we can't offer everything that other brands can offer, obviously, because a lot of people are bringing dials in from manufacturers. So we stick to what we do best. Or what we do best is frosted dials, hammered textures, or engine turn. And when we say engine turn, obviously, we mean straight line engine as well. So straight patterns. You know, we've we've mastered the the rose engine, and we, we do quite a lot of turning. Frosted frosted dials are very popular. We also frost dial movements. Um we do that various ways. You can hand frost it, which you do with a with a grip paste or a, a fine grip paste on a piece of glass, and you rub the, the metal around it, around it, around it, it creates a really, really fine frosted area. Or we do bead blasting, there's various types of things you can put in the bead plaster to create a finish, but you know, bead blasting's the main one. Um, So, so it's mainly, it's mainly frosted and engine turned dials that we specialize in. And also we've got um, certain things like on the S2 where we do the applied skeletonized chapter rings and whatnot, again, all done in house. So it's stuff that
0: we've learned over the years and perfected over a period of time. Now, the S2 is something, really something to talk about because that's a cracking watch. It is a special piece to look at. It retails for anybody that is interested Around 20,000, including VAT.
1: Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, So that's uh, that's a pretty serious timepiece. Do you want to describe it to our listeners? Tell us what it's all about.
1: Yeah, the S2 was our first in-house calibre. We say in-house and we use that term lightly, obviously. We don't make every part in-house, um, but it's, it is a true in-house calibre. we It's got a freeze-front balance on the front of the movement. And the reason we did that, I mean, when we did it, it was a bit worried to be honest whether everyone would like that aesthetic but the thing is we wanted to do something that hardly anybody else was doing Um, and people were doing tourbillons at the time. There's not many brands rob that have got the balance wheels on the front and it's a large large
0: balance wheel as you can see no you're in a you're in quite esteemed company there with the trinity balance you say it's called and uh I can think of MB and you. That's about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, Langer do one, and um, there's a couple of others, but but really, there's not many, especially a balance rim that size. That's the thing. You think the thing is, Rob? It's a cutthroat market, and, and um, you know there's a lot of damn good independent brands. I'm a massive fan of independent brands. Uh, and, you know, I run the Watchmakers Club. We put events on, and you know, uh, brands travel from all over the place to to, to join these events. So you know, it's a thing i'm really into but you know the problem is it's also a small market as such and all these collectors that buy into independent brands you know they've all got it's somebody buys a garret watch you can guarantee they've got five or six watches from our competitors so we have to do something we have to think ahead and do something that we know our competitors can't do and that's why when we went to the movement we went and put the balance wheel on the front rather than on the back of the watch just just meant that we're doing something totally unique and at the time we did it we were and bear in mind, the S2's probably blood-itcy. It's probably six years old now. Uh, when we launched it, we were the only brand as well doing that um, heat- blued skeletonized chaptering on the dial. There's a few brands doing it now, but at the time we were the only one. Um, but it was about giving that watch a handmade aesthetic. We didn't want to do pad printing on the dial. We didn't want to do anything other. So to, to do the Roman numerals, I say, we skeletonize the chaptering with a laser. And um, it's screwed on from underneath the dial. The screws come through in certain positions, and then we polish the the ends of the screws so you actually don't see them sticking through onto the um, onto the skirt like and I say it, it's been done a few times since, but at the time we were the only people doing it. We make a hands in house as well. Um, that's all done using traditional methods, heat blue. So again, it, like I say, with the S two, the aesthetic is engine turned or frosted dial applied heat blue chaptering and heat blue anchor hands the anchor hands aren't everybody's cup of tea but bear in mind we we do various others like lancine and and anchors become our kind of dna of the watch you can tell a, a garrett watch on the wrist from a mile away by the anchor hands
0: i mean you kind of read my mind there that's bizarre i was about to ask and i have many questions because obviously like this is a fascinating watch but it has an even more fascinating follow-up in my opinion in the s3 but we'll get to that in a moment but the hands where did it where did it come from? Where did this idea come from?
1: Yeah, what it was. I mean, to I mean, I'm into a lot of things, um, especially drinking, and uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, I like whiskeys. I like my real ales. But anyway, one of my hobbies is maritime. I collect maritime stuff. I've got a lot of um, replicas of, of ships like the Victory and whatnot, handmade replicas that are identical um, even down to the rigging. I've got a ship's figurehead, believe it or not, in my lounge. A lot of stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. And because I'm into maritime things, we were a, lo- a long time back, we launched a, uh, an eight level watch called the uh, Norfolk. And anyway, do you remember it? It had a big, uh, and, and it was based on um, aesthetics from maritime instruments. So it had a big white enamel dial, and the nameplate was rather large on it. And the reason it was larger was it was based on kind of. Instruments in um, in boiler rooms on ships, so like the pressure gauges and whatnot, what, where they had the large maker's name on the plate on the dial, and that's where that came about. And because we wanted to give it a bit of a maritime aesthetic, we went for the anchor hands. That's where it stemmed from, and um, and it became a part of that DNA. So it's you know we basically have them to every single watch now, and um, some people like and some people don't. Rob, it's one of those things.
0: I I must admit. I must admit that I'm a convert. I, I wasn't a fan, but I am a fan now. And
1: I like you see the reason I like them. I like where the hands cross over the anchors cross at a certain yeah. I just think it you know when you've got a, a larger dial and you've got a bit of an empty dial, I think the, the tails on the, on the anchors work. It fills the dial a little bit more, and that's what I go
0: for, kind of thing. I mean, it's certainly identifiable, it's recognisable, and it's memorable. And I mean. It's, uh, it's of course, not going to be to everyone's taste, but like you say, you do have options. And in fact, talking of options, you have a lot of options, right? I mean, you do a lot of bespoke work. Can you tell us what a customer hoping to have their own bespoke Garrick made can look forward to?
1: Well, it's crazy, to be honest. We never, ever do two watches the same, ever. So every time somebody orders a watch on the website or most clients contact us direct, it's, they pick and choose. So you know, you've got to bear in mind, even if some two people order frosted dial each well one will have a movement color different from the last the dial will be a different color the hands will be different so there's a choice of lance which are the sword shaped hands um, polished steel or heat blued or even painted say with a anchor hands heat blued or polished steel dial combinations any color basically uh, rhodium and pink gold are, are popular if it's an engine t- if it's a frosted dial the have an engine turn pa- pattern in the sub-second area uh, it can be a straight like a hobnail or something or it can be a, a turned pattern like a barley twist same with the engine turned patterns there's so many variants the same with the with, with the movement basically the sky's the limit you can have pink gold yellow gold rhodium silver and um, black even with an experimenting with black plating recently which is extremely difficult i've got to point out basically no two watches ever the same ever
0: that is amazing. I'm looking through the options, and I'm just my mind is running away with itself as it often does, and I'm getting excited because I know, I'm sure you're going to purchase one, Rob. Any second, actually. Well, any second, I'll be I'll be straight up with you. I'm not going to purchase one any second, but I certainly think I will purchase one. But it's going to take me more than a second to figure out what I want. I mean, well, I was talking to a client last night, Rob. Sorry
1: to interrupt. And uh, and. Uh... This client I've been talking to in America for literally six weeks, and it's the same with a lot of clients. that can never make up the mind because it's just it becomes a little bit confusing because there's so many options to choose from. And the other problem we have, other we put really nice images out on Instagram. Uh, We have a photographer who comes into the workshop, and funnily enough, she used to work for us in reception. Um, she's she's trained photographer now. She comes in and takes all the pictures and. Every time we put a new image at on um, on Instagram, you guarantee a client contacts and said, Oh, is my watch being built yet? And we'll go, no, it's not been started yet. Oh, can I change it to this? I've just seen the image. So it changes non-stop with clients. We um, right up until the
0: day of the assembly, really. I can I can really imagine that. And I was gonna ask, how much of a problem does your flexibility and willingness to create bespoke one-off pieces for basically every customer cause when it comes to building an identifiable brand image long-term? Is that a problem or is that your thing now?
1: Yeah, it's a huge problem. It, it's um, it, it guarantees someone will make an order and and some people end up changing it 10, and 15 times uh, up until the build. Honestly, it, it is a major problem, but we offer the service and we can't go back on it. Not only that, we do like building bespoke watches. It's cool and stuff we build and we, we love you bear in mind rob if we were putting the same old images out on instagram which is our main channel uh, all the time with people would lose interest in the brand pretty fast but because we've always got something new you know that's why people follow us and and, and we sell a lot of watches via instagram and social media because of the images it's an image driven thing and it works for us but so yeah it is a major problem and um but we have to sometimes tell say to clients and be brutally honest with them look you're going to create a of watch if you keep you know, you have to look at it this way. When, when somebody falls in love with a watch, uh, that's when they press the button and they say, oh, this is the one I like. The more you change, the more you're going to fall out of love with it. And that's what I kind of have to point out to some clients. And they go, yeah, I see your point. I'll uh, rein it in a little bit. Honestly, it's, um, it's, it's a nightmare for people being able to make up minds and then press the button. That's the problem because they just see so many different variations. Uh, it's
0: crazy. I think I understand where you're coming from. And I think, like, I would probably follow your advice, choose one that already existed. And if I had anything changed on it, it would be something subtle, like an engraving on the case back, or I don't know what else would be possible, or slightly different hands, or I don't know, whatever. But I, I think I know what you mean.
1: Yeah, we do. We do a lot. Of, well, we're have engraved movements. Uh, there's various things, textured movements, um, different colors. We put a lot on the, on the S4, for instance, you've got the engraved barrel and crown wheel plate, which sits over the. Um, over the two gears, and we put, we do a lot of things with that. We've done some, um, we did an expedition for the Saudi collectors group where we had Arabic uh, writing on there. We do dates of birth and all sorts of stuff. I mean, honestly, really, when we say the sky's the limit, the sky's the limit. Oh, and another one we do is with cases. So we have two different finishes on the cases. We normally do a fully polished case or we do a case with our standard case, which is grained on the edges, again, done in house, Frosted in between the lugs and polished on the top of the case. That's the one that we normally stick with, but we do a lot of frosted cases as well. So it's like a gold metal shade. and so that's done in the bead blasting room. So, yeah. in fact, we've just literally finished one last week for a client. So, again, like I say, I keep harping on about it. The sky is literally the limit. Clients can choose whatever they want. We're not, and it's the same. Like I say, with the cases,
0: they can choose the finish on the case. That is an interesting relationship. I was actually talking to uh, Dr. Rebecca Struthers last week about her new book that's coming out very shortly. And, well, in fact, I think it will probably be out by the time that this podcast airs. So if you've not seen that, hands of time, go and check it out. You can get it from all reputable book retailers. Um, She was speaking in that book about the importance in the old days of a client, uh, of the watchmaker-patron relationship. So you would have people that wanted to be involved in the process of design all the way through when they're having their watch made, and that's something that's kind of lost these days, and certainly lost at a price point like this. I mean, your watches start around five thousand, excluding VAT, right? Which is, I know, it's crazy, yeah, crazy, yeah, it is crazy. How do you do it? I guess you're a masochist, right? Well, well, I, I am. That's another story. <laughs> no, we <laughs> <laughs> will save it for the the blue podcast later, shall we?
1: <laughs> oh um Well, back to a couple of things. So, so about the client relationship, it's always been the same with us. We we take it very, very, very seriously, and any one of our clients will tell you. And there's quite a few scattered all over the world. most of them become good friends, and we even chat after they've purchased the watches all the way through the build. We chat on WhatsApp. Me and you have got this thing, Rob, about WhatsApp desktop, and um, I've got to say it's absolutely fantastic for sharing stuff with clients. We do
0: love it. We, we're in the minority, but we adore it. Right? We think it's the best thing ever.
1: It's fantastic, and and every time I'm speaking to a client, be it on via email, be it over the phone, or. Or on chat via the website, I always say, look, let's switch to WhatsApp. And I've got it up on my laptop, on my screen all the time. And I just share images from folders. So, you know, we've got that many images. We've got the folders and folders. Every client we've ever or built a watch for, we've got images of their watch builds and videos. And so we've got so much to share and we do it all via WhatsApp. And we have a very personal relationship with the clients. We we chat all night. We chat in the times. that a lot of them, like I say, become very good friends and, um, uh, you know, and, and that's the thing. I don't pass the client on to anybody else. The client deals with me from start to finish. So I deal with every email, every phone call. I won't let anybody else, even the girls in reception, are allowed to answer the, the phones to uh, sales side. Um, and, and I deal with the client all the way up to the finish. And even after that, uh, we check in, make sure everything's okay. If there's an issue with a watch, and believe me, you do get issues. Any brand that says they don't is lying, basically. You know, it, it Again, the client deals with me from start to finish. I I deal with everything, and um, and that's what people like. And like I say, we've got clients that bought watches, honestly, Rob, eight nine years ago, and they're still friends to this day. Um, you know, and and that's the thing. We it's a it's a thing we take very very seriously. But back to the price point, you know, it's our philosophy is high end affordable. It always has been so we our profit margins are extremely low if you imagine the level of work we're doing in-house and and like you're commenting on the price it's absolutely crazy and but it's important for us to get watches on risks, and it's important for us to have a, a relatively entry i say entry level it's i, I use that term likely some people may say it isn't entry level at that price point but For us, it's entry level, uh, for the level of craftsmanship involved. uh, You know, when you bear in mind, a customer orders a watch um, from, you know, they're choosing everything from start to finish or even making the hands. You know, most brands will tell you that at that price bracket, they're bringing hands in and rightly so. But we make the hands in-house, even the collets that sit in the center of the hands we make on a watchmakers, miniature watchmakers lathe. And every one of them is done for every individual client. Uh, It's extremely difficult to do it. And yeah, you're right. I am a masochist, but we d- we have we we f- we're, we're very uneasy when we put prices up. And somebody commented. Funny well, enough, I was talking to an Asian client like yesterday, who said to me, well, "Even on a Sunday, Rob, I'm doing this," and uh, he, he couldn't believe that we just launched the S6 and a and and we kept the price as low as the S4, you know. And, and but it was important for us. We just don't feel comfortable. It's mad, really. I'm a businessman. I, you know, we need to make money. We need to pay overheads, but. Um, Pricing is our is our number one priority. Is keeping it as low as we possibly can, and you know most retailers want forty percent margins and whatnot. We don't have that in a watch room at all, and uh, we can't sell watches. Okay, at all, got something we can't do.
0: Well, I'm not surprised because looking at this, and we mentioned a couple of other uh, British watchmakers like Schofield and Bremont, and of course there's yeah. an ordain up in Glasgow. But when it comes to this kind of in-house movement modifications and manufacturing components and whatnot there's really only you and then i guess roger smith like in in the british landscape right
1: yeah that's it yeah yeah exactly i mean obviously struthers are doing some fantastic work of course but you know we're doing our i turn we like i say we're doing our engine turning how to make the dials from start to finish there's a lot of stuff we're doing in house some stuff we can't do in house don't get me wrong you can't at this price point, you know we, all the prototyping and whatnot yeah we take months and months and months when we're doing anything like that and it's quite an important i mean rob i've got to be honest on numerous occasions that me and my partner have had the discussion do we do it externally you know it's not viable to do it this way but it's um it's something we don't feel comfortable with we've made our own bed so to speak and we've got to line it you know and that's why clients come to us like I say we don't do every single thing in house we can't possibly do it at that price point you know but we're doing enough and um and enough to interest clients and and it's a learning curve for us you know the more we can do going forward the better it is for us and, and we'll feel more comfortable but uh, like I say we're making bridges in-house we're making hands in-house we're making dials uh, in-house uh, that's the way it is and um it's the way it's always going to be. We don't have any plans to change it at this moment in time. And I've got to say, Rob, a lot of this thing that we do, and especially learning and whatnot, we've got a very good friend in the background who helps us out no end, and that's a good friend of mine called Andreas Strahler. And, and I always like to give him credit. He's always there on the end of the phone. He's a legendary watchmaker. And and whenever we've got issues, I mean, my partner, Simon, he's a, he's a fantastic watchmaker. He knows his stuff. But if ever we get stuck and we've got problems, Andrea's is always there on the end of the phone to help.
0: It makes good to have contacts like that, really. Well, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? I mean, it is a relationship industry and yeah. having someone in your corner that has that kind of knowledge and experience, helping push things forward is just invaluable. So tell me this, with all of this, uh, that you're taking on all of these burdens of bespoke watchmaking and, you know, talking to the clients on Sundays and, you know, by the sounds of it, never sleeping. How many watches are you actually able to produce in a year?
1: Well, you, believe it or not, because it's obviously rolling, so we've got a, a, a waiting list every year, and it just rolls on and on and on and on. We never produce more than 70 pieces per year. That's the maximum we can build. We can't do any more than 70, uh, but it's rolling on and on and on. So, you know, some, the, some waiting lists, uh, like on S2s and whatnot, are, are two years, some are six months, um, some are a year. It just rolls on and on. We do a lot of collections. So the only, uh, back to the retailer thing, the only Way we can sell through retailers is is, uh, is if they commission a collection, and we have a few that do commission collections, like ten or twenty pieces. And you know that's kind of the way we work it with with that, and it g- it gives everybody the margins involved because they'll uh, you know do something special. It means they can u- up the price a touch, uh, you know. and We don't we, but no, regardless of anything, Robert, seventy pieces. And the crazy situation is that we carry no stock at all, zero. We're never ever in a position to build watches for ourselves, believe it or not. And I'm not kidding. The first time I ever owned a Garrick watch was about a year ago.
0: We <laughs> were never in a position to build one. Oh, what did you, what did you go for? What did you choose after all this time?
1: Uh, well, I chose that. Uh, well, in fact, I chose two. Actually, I chose an S2 with a white dial. Cause I love the S2. It's a crafty watch. And then I've got one on my wrist at the moment, which is a copper dial um, S4 with heat blued hands, which, which I absolutely love. But it's honestly, it's a crazy situation. And, whenever we have been in a position and say we've managed to build a couple of pieces or something to have as demo pieces, guarantee if somebody walks in and goes, oh, it's a wedding, I'm absolutely desperate. Any chance you can sell me something in the next couple of months and we end up selling them again. So um, it's it's what, actually, Rob, it's one of the reasons we can never do um, exhibitions or shows because we've never really got anything to show. And <laughs> I know it's crazy. situation. And if we have, we have to take clients' watches. We literally have to speak to the client first, say, there's only chance we can take your watch to an exhibition well that is crazy that is absolutely crazy it's crazy um like madness really when you think about it but uh, some people say it's a good position to be in and, and but, it, but it isn't in reality because if we have a lot of clients who visit the workshop and we do tours and whatnot and always we've ever got to show is client's watches either finished and on test or it partially built but there's always a lot to see. i mean it matters not but it's just that we don't have any
0: stock at all nothing crazy that is that is an unreal situation. I mean, it's it's good, like like some people say, you know, to be in such demand that you're not able to get out ahead of that demand and create any surplus stock for whatever other purpose. But man, it's uh, it's tough, I guess, because people would be scratching their heads. Um, certainly, journalists, for example, or fairgoers hoping to see the watches in their hands more frequently, like, well, where are these pieces?
1: Well, the, the, another thing back back to this thing about fairs, Rob, and because it's it's nice to know what goes on behind the scenes with watch brands, and uh, you know I'm always quite honest about stuff. One of our biggest problems over the years, when we were, were visiting fairs and whatnot, was the fact we was always showing prototypes, and they were never quite finished, and um, you know that was a major issue for us. To be honest, you know, it, you you really when you're attending stuff and you meet in Germany, you want to show finished watches, um, and and. That was one of our biggest issues. Every time we ever met journalists, be it at Basel World, wherever it might be, Um, you know, we always
0: had prototypes. Um, you know, and, and that was a major problem for us uh, over the years, really. So do you think that there will be a time in the future that you're able to sort of put a pause on customer production and actually create that collection that you can take and show people? Or do you think you're just going to be rolling and rolling and rolling and, and serving the customers for as long as it takes for you to clear? I
1: don't know. I get, I get, very very stressed about delivery times and that's the problem because i'm dealing with clients myself and i'm not passing them on to anybody you know i i i get quite stressed when if it's hard to put delivery time on a watch yeah always e- even you know you, you, you can estimate always but then you've got testing and whatnot and we are to thoroughly test absolutely everything for weeks believe it or not and you know and adjust and we have and we're really thorough on timings as well we're we like to get everything in all the plus five, plus three, if possible. So there's a lot of adjustments to make over a period of time because, the you know, simply movements like on the S4, which is a modified unit test, they're not meant to do anything like that. You know, plus eight to plus 11 is where they normally sit. So we play around with what is So, you know, quite a lot to get the timings correct. And um that's when things start to drag out. And then you, we've got clients, normally they're quite the understanding, but when you've got them on your back and... And I say, no, oh, you said delivery date at such and such, and you went out two to three weeks late. 99% of clients are fine, but so on. Uh, I take it very personally, and I get quite stressed with it. And this is the point, because I just don't want to put clients off. I don't want to keep clients waiting. Um, I don't think there's ever, we're ever going to be in a position, frankly, unless we can take on extra watchmakers. But it's, it's finding good enough watchmakers and we don't have the time to train people that's another thing we're just flat out and my watchmakers are stressed all the time it's a it's a strange situation to be in it's a funny one there's so much to do even we find prototyping difficult rob we you know we we've got various launches planned this year we've just done the s6 we've got a deadbeat seconds s2 coming out at the end of the year crazy situation with a deadbeat we announced it on whatsapp a year ago and completely sold out before we'd even built the watch oh how inconvenient (laughs) yeah, <laughs> I know, but then again we're under pressure we to, to, to prototype it and deliver it. This is the pr- problem we're always under pressure Rob. It's not a good thing. And as you all know, uh, watchmakers don't work well under pressure. It's not a you know they, they need to have a good mindset and a, and, a, and be and be focused,
0: and uh, pressure's not good for anybody. It is a situation that sounds like, commercially at least, it would be sustainable because the demand is there and obviously it's very exclusive and you take a very personal approach to the design and creation of the watch, leading the customer through the design process as you do. But yeah, it's a tough one because that kind of stress is not sustainable and certainly if you wanted to, I don't know, if you you don't need to grow, but if you wanted to grow, then obviously having some time for you to develop things in-house and then to create Press samples and a more solid core. That's well.
1: Oh, that's a that's a no, Rob. That's a, that's a really good point. Actually, the the thing is, we do want to grow, but how do we grow? We're kind of stuck in a rut. We we're, we're busy. You know, our order books are always full. We we you know we've only got so many watchmakers, three in total, counting my partner, and we don't have the time to do a lot of prototyping like we used to do. We can only build 70 watches per year because of the handmade nature of the watches. A lot of finishing to do, you know, 18 and polishing and all that stuff that's involved on the hands and cases and everything, that, you know, normal people take for granted and just think, oh, you, you're just putting something in a case. It doesn't work like that. And there's a lot of work to do. And and how do we grow? How do we double up unless less, you know, double production, unless we get more watchmakers on board? then Then, you know, you've got the situation where our profits are low. And can we afford to, take on more watchmakers can have we got the time to train more watchmakers it's a really really difficult situation for us and then um, while getting investors on board i don't know what we're going to do we're in a good position as a brand and uh, and don't get me wrong a lot of independents are doing extremely well at the moment but how do we grow it's a damn good question i really have no idea
0: <laughs> well, I mean, like you say, a lot of independents are doing well and, you know, a lot would like to be doing as well as you are at the moment with all of that interest and that long, full order book. But of course, as we're identifying quite clearly here, it does raise its own problems, its own challenges. And yeah, you. I suppose if you want to grow and if you want to create more space in the price for you to earn more money to reinvest in new developments, then you need to increase the, the numbers of watches that you're producing. But yeah, what comes first? And that's the point, Rob.
1: And like we we don't have backers or anything, and we you know we're it's all our own funds in this business, and it always has been. And don't get me wrong, we've had uh, offers time and time and time again from investors and people even wanting to buy the business, believe it or not. Oh, really?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. Yeah, we've got two offers on the table at the moment: one from Asia and one from Saudi, and and you know they they kind of like what we're doing and we've built a you know a, a, a decent niche brand but the we always shy away from backers it'd be a, in reality it'd be a good thing after all rob that's what shares are for in businesses you you take shareholders on board and back to bremonts exactly what Bremont have done but uh the, the thing is we don't like pressure and um we've discussed this many times me and my partner and the uh, We thought, do we go for investors? Do we not go for investors? But it's just the fact is having them breathing down your neck. For us, it's not a good thing. So again, we also—it's like a vicious circle, um, you know—and that's the problem. Yeah, honestly, it's a crazy situation for us. Um, And you know, like I say, a lot of independents—they they work it so that they're bringing things in from different places. They have quite small workshops. And we've got quite a large setup, and our overheads are quite big um, for such a small brand. Uh, like I say, we, we've not just got a single workshop. We've got extra things like polishing room, plating rooms, and, um, you know, finishing rooms. And, and, and it's all an extra cost. It's all extra electricity. It's extra machinery. Um, you've got to have somebody doing the polishing while a watchmaker sat there focusing on what he's doing. And um, it's quite a big setup for a small brand, and that's the point. How do we increase process?
0: So, what are you going to do in the future? I mean, realistically speaking, how long can you or how long will you let yourself go on like this with this kind of stress and this kind of pressure on yourself?
1: I don't know. I mean, people say it's stressful, and honestly, it does get a little bit stressful, but I do de stress at weekends. I turn off completely. I talk to clients when I'm, you know, on my laptop and whatnot, but, you know, I like a pint, Rob. I go out and I chill out and I have a, I have a drink. I'm a, I like my whiskies and stuff. And um, so I do turn off from it all. But the point is, the team's always under pressure, and that's the problem. Waiting lists are a, a nightmare for any brand. As any independent brand will tell you, because um, you know nobody likes delivering watches late, and and it can turn customers off ordering. So you know a lot of clients they want watches straight away. They want watches in a few watches in a few weeks. It's it you know the market's changed now, and and obviously because of uh, you know buying Rolexes or whatnot on the waiting lists on them a lot of newer clients, and i understand that it's a fact and and it's a fact of life now if you want to watch you're gonna have to wait for it but you know there are clients that don't want to wait a year don't want to wait two years and that's that's the problem i don't know rob you know where do we go i have no idea we're in a good position and we're going to plod along forever and a day but um, it's a difficult one you know, we've grown to a point where we can't really grow anymore without the investment, and we don't really want to yeah. take. Yeah, you know, I've got to be honest, a few weeks ago, we were, I was talking to a mate, friend of mine, Pietro, and I did say, you know, we were genuinely thinking about taking investors on board. Uh, but I'm not sure it's a good thing for us. People like it because we're totally independent. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's a positive or a negative. I don't know, Rob. I don't know what
0: your opinion is. Well, my opinion is that you're absolutely right, and you should keep it uh, under your direct control for as long as possible. Absolutely, but I also think that it is important that you figure out a, a, a plan, at least a roadmap, that gives some clear timings of, of when you yeah. want to change the the way you are engaging with the business, so that it can can grow in the future. I think that's key. But and to, I would not take investment if you can help. I think that gives you a huge amount of power, but that power, of course, has resulted in this incredible flexibility for the clients which has resulted in this enormous waiting list which although sounds great and has its benefits as we know like the worst thing about it from you from a product perspective almost is that if you have a client waiting for two years and you have all of this awesome stuff coming out all the time and every single watch basically a new piece that could effectively turn their head they'll not only change their mind of what they want throughout the period that they're waiting for the watch that they've already ordered but had they had the watch that they ordered on day one, they likely would have bought another one at the end of the two years because there's so many things that have happened since. So, you know, like, you actually, yeah. nobody thinks about this, right? Okay, this is a really, I was talking to Chapek about this the other day because they have a massive, massive, massive backlog of orders now and they've closed orders so they can try. I mean, it's it sounds great. Again, it looks like a massive success story and it is a massive success story, but it brings with it its new challenges. And Chaffee was saying that the issue is, they have to keep releasing novelties to stay relevant, to stay in the news, to continue to grow and offer diversity.
1: Well, funnily enough, I know I, I know he's laughing at you very well from Chapek, and uh, he's a good friend of mine. And um, you know, we've been together over the years. I'm just,
0: I tell you what, you you two should definitely grab a few pints together and, and just drown drown your sorrow as well Talking about this, well, we have. <laughs> this is I bet I, I bet you have yeah. Um, but I mean, this is this is a problem he's facing now, where like people are seeing the novelties and they're on the waiting list, and they've been waiting ages, and then they go, oh, you know what, I'll change my order to this new one. And that's totally their right, you know, if they haven't received the watch they've ordered, fine.
1: I mean, I'm a, mass- I'm a massive fan. Of- there's a lot of independent bands I'm a massive fan of. In fact, I like them all, uh, you know, every brand. You know, you've got to bear in mind, It takes some guts to start a watch brand. You know, not all of them make it, some do, some don't. You know, and, and you know, I, there's... I admire anybody that's done it, frankly, because it, it was a long road for us, and it really was before we kind of hit it big. You know, and it's the same with Chapek. I like the stuff they're doing. It's absolutely crazy, phenomenal. The new, the new movement, the dials are incredible, uh, but, but they're in the same position. They, they've taken on investors, and, and, try, and they've grown and grown and grown and grown. But the point is, no matter how big that company grows and how hard Xavier works, they still have a massive backlog. So it works for some brands. It doesn't work for others. The The thing is with us, Rob, which a lot of people don't understand, we slogged away in the background for years, mate, really prototyping and honing our skills and trying to get things right. And it was only really about probably – it was about three, four years ago when when things really started to take off for us. You know, Otherwise, we were just chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. It's because we were just insisted on doing the in-house thing – you know and that's that's it as it's positives and negatives and the negatives were that it was a learning curve for us a long 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 road um you know where and we made a hell of a lot of this don't get me wrong well, stacks of mistakes over the years um with things you know and, and that's the point but you know we back to this um investor thing and everything else uh where where do we go uh, you know it it's it's a really difficult thing for us and uh, we want to carry on doing as much in-house as we possibly can, but like I say, it's the profit margins that are extremely low. It's a it's a difficult situation, and uh, I don't see any easy way around it at the moment. T- to be honest, we you know we've grown to a point where we can't really grow any more at the moment. But the, the other biggest problem, like I say, and I keep going over the same things, is that is, is watchmakers. It's just finding it, watchmakers, and even Find us all with the relevant skill sets, it's difficult. Because, you know, watchmakers, a lot of watchmakers in the UK, they're all trained on lathes and whatnot, and uh, they go straight into service centre. I mean, there's some really good up-and-comers at the moment I'm talking to that are fantastic and doing some cracking work. Even for those, buying the machinery is difficult. It's expensive and uh, and it's hard to find. And, and there, and there hasn't been a watchmaking industry in the UK for God knows how long. It's, as you know, struthers have been there. Uh, chipping away and, and doing their thing and there's really only roger smith doing uh the in-house thing um it, it's a difficult one and then um, it's how other people perceive you as a brand as well um you know uh, british brands are big right now but they weren't for a long time you know and we were kind of look british brands are always looked on as quirky little brands in the past and then that's changed now uh, because the, the the thing I look at it is the good thing about independence in general, and the good thing about British watch brands is that we all do our own thing. We don't follow trends, and that's the point. That's what kind of separates us from everybody else, and that's why we've we all we're always going to have clients, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think you will for sure, and I think there's a nice amount of British brands now. There's not too many. The market isn't oversaturated, and the whole Cool no, Britannia thing is still uh, still li- alive and kicking in the watchmaking industry.
1: Well, it matters. The British it does matter. A lot of our Asian clients, they buy the watches because they're British, uh, and, and that's the point, you know, as British as So would I. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you were Swiss... It, but it, it's nice to you know, I've always had this thing, and I've been chipping away about the watchmaking side, you know, reviving watchmaking. It's been my thing for years and years and years, you know, uh, and, and, it, and I've always banged on about it. I, I just think it's a... You know, there's a lot of skills been lost over the years in the UK, and, and you know... And, clearly they need to be revised and that's kind of what we're trying to do uh, i mean rob the things you take for granted in watch brands like plating plating is really really difficult believe it or not The reason most brands don't do plating in-house of movement parts and, and dials uh, it, you think it's simple as dipping something into a plating solution but it isn't at all you get so many especially rhodian plates difficult to do and you get the failure rates incredibly high There's a a technique for doing everything, and it's a learning curve. And um, things like that take a long, long time to perfect, um, believe me, because you you get plating tarnishing and all that kind of stuff. And we were experimenting for ages. We wanted to do black plating. Anyone will tell you, Rob, it's a nightmare. Black plating is an absolute nightmare. And we were experimenting for months and months before we finally managed to perfect it, which we did on the S6 movement and the S6 dial. But even then, the the first time we did it, it had a bluey tint. So we called it, I can't remember what we called the colour. We called it uh, night or night blue or something. Nice. Because it was kind of half black and half blue. Uh, you know, it, little things like that that take time and we're focused on um, time and time and time again and again. That stops us again from building in-house, watching the stuff, prototyping and, and all the things we do in the background. So, um,
0: you know, it's never ending, basically. Talking of those platings and the incredible colours you're able to get on the dial, could you talk us through like what is possible and what isn't, and how do you get a finish like that green, for example?
1: Well, actually, we don't. So, I was, so being brutally honest with you, so that all we can do in house, we do a rhodium plates. So we do rhodium, silver, yellow, and pink gold, and black. But well, any of the other colours, we have to send externally. It's a galvanic treatment. We can't do it in house. It's actually a a really, really difficult process to do and there's vacuums used and all sorts of things um, to do it. Um, you can use a coloured lacquer, um, but the difference between a lacquer and a galvanic treatment is a galvanic treatment's got a bit of a sparkle to it and it's much better. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and and the company we use, you know, I'll be brutally honest about that, I've got nothing to hide, the company we use for, for galvanic treatments is Conwell Mine, which is Carrie Vortalanin's um, dial and plating company. Oh,
0: wow. Oh, well, that's a cool collaboration.
1: Well, they, they do it for a lot of brands. They do it for a lot of independent brands, um, and they're the best at what they do. So, any, any so like I say, we do pink, gold, rhodium, black, and silver in-house, always. This is on the movements and on the on the dials. Any specific colours we send to Combo mile, we make the dials, we turn the dials, we send
0: them to Combo mile, and they send them us back with the colours on. So, my favourite watch, I think, in the whole Garrett collection, I've decided now, my favourite, and typically it's, uh, it's not one of the entry-level pieces, because I've got... Expensive taste, it would seem, is the uh, S5.
1: Oh, yes. The S5, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the S5 is my favorite. Full stop. Yeah.
0: Uh, S5 is slick and elegant. It's beautiful. So it's not got the balance on the dial. It's three hands, all centrally mounted, but it's got brilliant engine turning finishing. I love this. I don't know what you'd call it. Rich burgundy claret. Uh, maroon dial that is absolutely stunning. That's, I guess, one of the ones that's been plated.
1: Oh, yeah, the one you're looking at, probably. Yeah, we call it plum.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, it is. It's oh, perfect. That's much better. Pe- yeah, plum.
1: Yeah, it's like a like a burgundy color. Yeah, but the, again, the sky's the limit. We've done we've done ice blue, white, blacks, rhodian, pink, gold's been a really, really popular one. It's a, uh, I. We were in. Insp- see, I've always been inspired, like by um, obviously the work that Roger Smith does. I like Brege type dials. I like, I love anything Daniels did. I just think it's stunning, and so we're always inspired by that type of thing. And 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 and, and you know, that's what inspired us with the S five again. The same as it did with the S four. It said those Brega type dials and the way that dials uh, constructed. It looks quite simple but there's various aspects to the way it's made you've got a dial blank um that you make first then you have to frost and finish that dial uh, you rivet the seat on the, the the dial seat um and then finish it on top to hide that uh, you you can frost it or or turn it and plate it and then the chapter ring is then applied separately and it's there's there's three holes you see the round markers around the chapter ring the the minute mark yeah the what the marker are, uh, 12 8 and 4 is where the actual ends of the screws come through so we screw that chapter in got from underneath the dial and then we literally everything all those roman numerals and the markers are, are laser engraved believe it or, or you can chemically etch it laser engraves the best method and then every one of those is infilled with ink by hand so we use a syringe and we infill it mm-hmm. And then we we do exactly the same on the screw heads. We infill, and then what we do, we put it onto a lathe, and we do what you call spin it, which is uh, which is circular graining it. And then that literally um, the circular graining takes the excess ink off, and then it gives us the, the chattering, the grain defect um,
0: at the same time. So quite a long winded process to do the dial from start to finish. Beautiful though, beautiful. I was wondering where those hidden screws were underneath. I was, uh, as you're talking, I've zoomed into this. And I was looking around if I could see any discernible difference between any of the hour markers, because I figured they must be poking out in one of those dots. But no, it's a beautiful, beautiful job. So
1: yeah, you have to, you, you, you have to. We literally infill it with a syringe. It's crazy, absolutely crazy. Amazing, amazing. We don't, we don't do any pat printing at all on any of the watches. So it's uh, the, the dial on the. On the S6 and the dial on the S5, the dial on the S4, again the chapter rings are all in by hand. That's the level of workmanship involved in in building one each each one of those watches, whether it's a, a five grand price point or a
0: twenty grand price point, it's the same, no no difference. Amazing, and I have to say, the thirty nine millimeter case stands right up my street in terms of wearability, and that that movement. Or
1: oh. obviously, as you know, most of our watches are forty two minutes because the movement dictates the size, and uh, you know, on the S4 and the S6, we use a modified uh, ETA and it's a 16 line movement. So it's, it's, we can only really fit in a 42 mil case, although the cases are smaller to wear on the wrist the way they're designed. Then we had to do a 39 mil watch, we had to, especially for our Asian clients. And um, we all prefer the smaller sizes. And that's what, why that came about, to be honest. It was important. uh Who makes the cases? Do you have them made in the UK? We, the cases are all made in the UK um, at a local engineering company, and they come to us in weeks. So the, it works two ways actually. We do one-off bespoke pieces in house uh, from start to finish, but only one off because it's such a long winded process to make a case. And then we all the other cases we we make in small batches of twenty at a time by a local engineering company in Norwich, and they come to us. They're raw, and I mean raw, straight off the machine. So you can imagine the finishing involved on each case. The the, You know, the graining, it's called linishing um, on the edges, the frosting, the polishing to get it
0: up to a a decent standard. It's it's three to four hours work on a case, um, on every single case. Wow. Well, it certainly looks like it's worth it. Now, tell me about the movement in the S5 a little bit, if you don't mind, because you mentioned it was a different calibre.
1: Yeah, so the movement, again, my partner, Simon, um, designed it in collaboration with Andreas. Obviously, Andreas is our man in the background who, who helps us out. And we wanted a typically British movement. So um, we we, uh, we had a few issues with that movement, actually. We were prototyping for about 18 months in total. It was a bit of a nightmare getting it to run properly. Anyone will tell you who's ever done anything like that. It's getting the escapement to work correctly and the gear trains to to run and the timing's right you know we uh, we had we put a render up on it's a bit of a story involved with the s5 again we did the same again we put a render up of the watch a couple of years back on um, on instagram to say we, we were doing a 39 mil watch and it was apps it was the highest ranked post ever literally we didn't think anything of it we just said 30 mil 9 mil watch coming soon s5 prototyping and literally went absolutely crazy email going mad website traffic We sold out again, Rob, before we'd even launched or put a render. We didn't even have a render of the watch when we first announced it, believe it or not. Just like, if I remember rightly, I think I remember how we did it, actually. It was a 3D printed case, um, the orange plastic. Mental. We put an image out on Instagram. It went crazy. So Asian clients contacted us from like Singapore and Hong Kong and whatnot, all saying, look, we want to buy this watch. And I was saying, you can't buy it. It doesn't exist. Um, But no, we want to put our name down. We know it's going to sell out. So... We had a, a list straight away. We we had to rush to get some kind of renders together, um, which is unusual for us because we don't normally work with renders. We put the renders out and then literally, and we were thinking, oh no, these clients want it because they've, they've already said they want to buy the watch. And a bit stressful situation. And we, we showed them the designs for the S5 and literally all of them put the money down and, and it kind of enabled us to finish the movement. And then the... You know, we we we, we anticipated a, a delivery of time of about a year, but it turned into 18 months, up to two years, believe it or not. Well, every single client's been patient because they knew it was kind of built and designed from the ground up. Uh, and, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, we make we make a lot of the parts in-house. We get some of the parts um, off Andreas. We, uh, we have to try and keep the price down. We just can't do a total in-house movement, Rob. It's impossible to do it. But it's built from the ground up and designed from the ground up. And that's the thing. You know, it's... a it's a decent movement, but there's a lot of teething problems with these things in the background. It's like people don't understand what what goes on, and um, and you, you think the if you're not a watchmaker, people think you just put a watch movement together and it kind of runs. But there's a lot of um, of settling to do. <laughs>
0: Settling is the word, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Absolutely. Now I was looking for the word. I think I've nailed it with that one.
0: Um, Absolutely smashed it out of the park, mate. That's the best way to describe everything we do. Well,
1: Rob, the point is, even when you're setting jewels and putting jewels in, and you, you get them slightly out of alignment, and it affects the whole running of the watch and the friction and whatnot. <laughs> you know, you love it, and and people take that for granted, and uh, and they don't realise, but it all matters, and it all affects the timing, and it all affects the amplitude on the watch i mean i'm talking like i'm a watchmaker but i've just learned a hell of a lot from all the issues that we've had over the years and talking to my watchmakers but then honestly it's a long-winded process when you do anything like that but you know we're pleased with the end result i love the way the s5 looks especially with the textured movement i think it looks stunning and, and again it's got our dna in it and and, and it's
0: unique you won't find another movement that looks the same as that at all it's totally unique yeah, it's absolutely smashing. So let's say I wanted to buy one of those today and I had cash in my hand and I had a WhatsApp desktop installed and ready to go. What do I do? How long did it take me? Most people kind of contact us first. We, we very rarely sell watches, but ne- literally
1: nobody just goes on the website and orders a watch. They normally chat with us via WhatsApp because of the WhatsApp icon on the website right, first. We normally go back and forth for a few days, sometimes a few weeks. And um, you know, discussing things when they're happy, then they pull the trigger and they buy all the website, and then it's 65% deposit, and then they pay the balance when the, when the watch is built. Um, and it's just wet, really, on the, how long the client wants to wait. S5 is quite a waiting list on an S5, S4, and S6. We've managed to get that down considerably now, just because we've literally honed our skills at, at building those watches, and we're pretty fast at making the dials and stuff at the moment. The, the one watch that's worth Discussing, like to say that we've got in the background at the moment is the deadbeat seconds, which is going to be a big thing for us. I think that's going to be a beauty, Rob. The S6 movement is already nice. There's a lot of extra stuff that that now goes on the back of the movement to run the deadbeat, and uh, I think you know that's what we're kind of concentrating on at the moment. And we've got other things in the background as well, like the new regularly regulator Mark II, which is a pretty unusual looking watch, and it's really cool. And again. Similar situation with that. We put an image up on the on the Instagram, and you know the story. Um, we sold the first batch straight away. <laughs> crazy. Absolutely. I mean, Rob, it's a crazy situation for us. We've never been in a situation like this, apart apart from the last year or two. And, and we're quite humbled by it, realistically. Honestly, you'd think it's a major thing for any brand to sell watches like that. But for us, it's quite humbling that people put their trust in us and buy watches without even seeing the finished article. And honestly, after all the hard work that we've put into this brand over the years, it kind of, it, it brings a smile to our faces and,
0: that, and it makes us feel proud, really proud, to be honest. I mean, it really should because you, you've you done the really hard bit. Now, of course, there are challenges ahead and how to grow and continue to develop the brand and spread the message and whatnot. And also, you know, how to reduce stress on yourself and all the rest of the team and the watchmakers especially. But you've really nailed it. Like you've absolutely smashed the early phase of brand development and it took time as it would normally, but now you've seen the explosion of interest and you're reaping the benefits like never before. So kudos to you. Uh, did you think that when the pandemic restrictions were lifted that you would see a drop off in sales? Because of course that was the era in which independent watchmaking really exploded. I did, to be honest. And I talked to quite a lot of other brands in
1: the background because I I work as a consultant in the background and uh, for some some brands everything's carrying on as normal. For some for others it's um it's it's a bit slow. You know, I, I, I genuinely did think it would drop off, but I you've got to remain relevant and you've got to do interesting stuff. And and I think the thing that works for us, Rob, is we put a lot of decent images out on Instagram and we chat with clients. A lot and we you know we're sharing images of all the clients and share it with their friends and stuff. and uh, i think you know because we're always working on new stuff as well we 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 have a bit of a strange way of doing things a lot of brands don't do a launch until the watch is actually ready we found over the last couple of years that what works for us is to give people a teaser at first uh, you know and and maybe put a render out or maybe show a prototype image of something like we did with the case of the S5, like we've done with all um, with the watches, we'll put a prototype of the movement or something out there that we're working on. We do that, and so if people get a sneak preview months before the launch, as they did with the S6, we were putting images of the dial app being made and whatnot. That kind of works for us, it keeps us relevant, and it and it keeps us one step ahead, to be honest. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for us. And because we're always working in the workshop, on building things and doing things, we're, we're in a position where we can do that. You know, it's it's dropped off a touch after lockdown, but you know, no different than than it ever was before it started. And um, and and that's the thing with us. I just think we've got a lot of interesting stuff on the cards. And um, you know, like like I say, S six just launched regulator Mark twos. We're working on at the moment. Hopefully, level the prototype for three to four weeks. Then we've got the deadbeat. and this is all stuff that people are talking about. People are anticipating what's coming next, and um, Whereas a lot of people like to keep it secret, we don't. I, I, we we like to keep our customers informed. Like I say, it pays dividends for us, Rob, being honest.
0: Absolutely. That is the name of the game and a good point on which to wrap up the interview, I think, because uh, honesty is the most important thing to so many new brands in watchmaking. i tell you what I'll do, because I'm not going to ask you to send me a a press piece of the new Deadbeat, because it just doesn't exist, and I'm sure it won't exist. I'll, I'll come over to the uk i'll come for a pint with you and you can show it to me when it's ready when you've got one ready to send to a customer and i'll do a i'll do a review of it on the show because i'm absolutely fascinated to see it in real life and uh more power to you for bringing that idea an ambitious idea to life so to our listeners if you would like to ask any questions to dave i can post them to him later i'm sure we'll get him back on the show because uh one of the easiest hour interviews of my life. I didn't really have to say anything. I just sat here and listened to you talk. It's great. I I never stop, Rob. That's a problem. <laughs> you can come back. That's for sure. Not a problem for me. You can get in touch with me on Instagram at Rob Nuds. That's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. My regular co-host is findable at A L O N b-e-n-j-o-s-e-p-h or you can email us either rob at therealtime.show or alan at therealtime.show we will be back next week with another Q&A session and another interview with one of Watchmaking's leading lights until then stay safe and keep on ticking